among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. It will not return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom, for Sodom uh, than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles were the, that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. It's a great reminder, isn't it, that Jesus says, of the words that we hear so often, all the prophets would have longed to hear what you hear. 
but didn't get to hear it. Um, a, a big welcome to those who've just joined us uh, this morning. I know some of the parents couldn't be here, although they were here because they were dealing with children, uh, which is ex to be expected, and that's our responsibility, but it's, uh, it is great to be together. Um, the first of the four rocks uh, is a passage that is full with excitement. Uh, so we're going to look first at an exciting problem and then about something that's really exciting, the exciting, uh, super, uh, super exciting and on, on steroids. I, I don't know if you've watched a TV show. I, I sometimes recommend shows and then Alison reminds me that there's one or two unseemly moments in it, and, um, which I probably was sleeping through. But um, there is a very clever show, it's an older show now, called Curb Your Enthusiasm, written by and about the genius who lay behind the Seinfeld set of um, shows. And Larry David really is a genius. And it's about, I just love the, the title, Curb Your Enthusiasm. And there's a sense in which if you were to see Jesus in these, in these chapters, you might be tempted to say, Jesus, please curb your enthusiasm. Because this is a passage where he is, as he is quite often if you read carefully, quite excited and passionate and there's a there's a word used of him which is almost the sort of exulting where you almost can't help but jump up for joy I don't know if that's part of your picture of Jesus uh, most of the, our sort of religious pictures of Jesus are with him being very solemn and looking distantly into the into the fair with that sort of renaissance painting but in here he's very excited and, and let's go back to, to chapter 10 verse 2 uh, in the large print that you had, or large-ish print. Um, this comes directly after the passage we looked at last night, and where Jesus calls one of the three men to follow him, and then speaks as if when he follows him, immediately he'll be caught up in proclaiming the kingdom of God. I find that interesting and troubling and puzzling. Some of you who been unfortunate enough to be caught up in conversations with me of late now that I'm really wrestling to say what is it that Jesus expects of us all of us any of us who are followers of his uh, particularly in the question of what part does he think we all play uh, in the spread of the news of his kingdom because at times I felt that Christians have asked of ordinary Christians to do more than the Bible does uh, and so, sometimes I think we ask less. And I'm always trying to work out what exactly does Jesus say to get this right? Uh, so we've got the balance and, and the thrust right. But here's, here he's talking to a group of disciples. Uh, look at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Remember from last night, from 951, the whole of Luke's gospel from here on in is Jesus travelling to Jerusalem. Everything has got the shadow of what's coming. He knows what's coming. He's told them twice in chapter 9. And now he's talking to these disciples of his and he says in verse 2, He told them, the harvest is plentiful, the workers or the labourers are few. Now this was noted by a couple of people as an absolutely essential part of these chapters and it is. It's sort of the hinge and the explosive point where it starts. Jesus sees something that is really terrific and we'll see that it, often the disciples don't agree with him on this. But there's a problem, which is fairly obvious. So Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. And if, as Jesus did, you grow up in a land where everything lived or died on how the harvest went, this is great news. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful that he's talking about. 
which is good news. But you, those of you who grew up in rural parts of the country or have read about that will know that harvest time is the time when you're likely to see tractors going at 3 a.m. in the morning. When it's harvest time, everybody gets into the field. You better get those crops out real quick because one drop of rain can drop the value of that crop or completely destroy it. Harvest time is exciting. It's synonymous in the Old Testament with times of joy because you're going to live and your family's going to live. But it's a time of massive effort. Uh, it's a time of urgency when the harvest is ready to go. And the problem that Jesus talks about uh, is that, that, that the labourers are few. No problem with the harvest. The harvest is ready to go. But the problem Jesus sees is there's this great opportunity, but this problem that there aren't enough labourers. Let me take you to John 4. You don't need to look it up if you don't want to, but John 4, Jesus is in Samaria um, where the Jews are not very popular and he's having a conversation with a Samaritan woman and it's one of the extraordinary parts of Jesus' life and ministry. And Jesus says, reveal something about himself to this woman that he reveals to nobody else. He treats her with extraordinary honour as she asks questions and they chat together. The disciples come back. She's already gone back to the town. She has said to the people there, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. The Samaritans were famous for wearing white. And they're coming to Jesus as his disciples come back with the lunch. Then Jesus, just to cut right into the relevant part, in verse 35, Jesus says, Do you not have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. Right? So he's saying, you've got a saying. Or he could actually be saying, don't say. But you've got a saying that says, the harvest is, it's not, this is not a harvest time. This is time for something else. People are not ready to be brought into the kingdom. People are hard-hearted and distant and cynical, etc. You have a saying that says, it's not, not, now is not the time for harvesting. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. So he's saying, you tend to think, well, this is not a time for harvesting. And this is not a time for fishing. This is not a time to be bringing people to Christ. It, it's a tough time. Um, he says, no, no, it is ready. In fact, literally what he says is the fields are white and ready for harvest. And some of you will know that some of the people who understood the times then, that there was simply no crop that the Jews grew that when it was ready for harvest was white. It was a golden colour like it is with our wheat and things like that. Why does Jesus say the fields are white? Look, he says, the fields are white and ready for harvest. Almost certainly he's talking about the Samaritans who are coming out from their village to see Jesus and the disciples. Because the woman's gone in and told them, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They've heard, they've come out, and in the end Jesus spends a couple of days with them. They are remarkably open. He gets a beautiful welcome from the hated and hateful Samaritans. Jesus seems to be, you know, he's saying, they're white, they're ready, look, they're coming. And there's a tendency for us to think, oh, no, this is not a time for harvest. And Jesus is saying then and now, no, 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 don't, don't put it off. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. The problem is there aren't enough labourers to bring it in. And that's a problem because the harvest can go to waste. It can end up being a tragic missed opportunity because people are saying, no, this is, we've, got other th we, we've got to work in other parts of the farm at the moment. So what's the answer? Well, as you've noticed, it's not a great mystery what the answer is. 
He told them, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. That word ask is, is um, there's a number of different words for ask uh, in most languages. This is the word for plead. This is the word for on your knees. Beg the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. This is a crucial moment. It's a do or die moment. Don't miss it moment. He says, beg that the Lord of the harvest, who is who? Well, I think if you look at the verse before it where Jesus is called Lord, same word, and in a few minutes he's going to send people into the harvest, he's almost certainly speaking of himself. Ask me, beg, that the Lord of the harvest would send out some of his workers. He's got workers. They just need to be put in the right place. Ask him to send labourers out to the harvest. So there's an exciting time, but there's the possibility of missing it. And uh, Jesus wants the, the harvest to be brought in. It's a bit like the fishing picture that Jesus uses in Mark 3. He speaks of himself releasing captives, setting them free. This is, this is the whole, you know, you know this, this is not new. But the important thing for us to hear is one of the, what is the first of the great four rocks that he gives us here? It's the question of harvest and the shortage of workers and the urgency of the moment because it will pass. There will come a time when you can't harvest anymore. Well, the disciples go out. I've, I've put those other words, although there's wonderful truths in it. I put them in small writing because they're mission specific. In fact, later on, Jesus will contrast the specific instructions he gives to these group on this mission to what they're to do later. So that's mission specific. So I thought we'd leave it just because we don't have infinite time here, as you know, and go to what happens when the guys come back. They're sent out on the mission. Um, it's good that they come back because look at what Jesus says about the mission in verse 3. Go. And that's, that's where it's got a, it, it can have a sense of violence. It's the sort of going that the ball has when it leaves the hands of someone who's throwing at the stumps. It's a, it's a throwing sense. So he says, he says to the disciples, get out there right? and do some preaching about the kingdom and some healing that goes along with the kingdom. Go, he said, I'm sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. Now, Lambs amongst wolves, I'd much rather be a wolf than a lamb in that picture. Right? No one's putting any money on the lambs and they're not feeling very comfortable. So Jesus does indicate this mission will have moments of fearfulness. He says quite clearly later, as you heard, that he, that he, he keeps them safe, as safe as they need to be kept. But it, it, is a, it is a position of discomfort. The harvest that we're sent to be amongst is somewhat dangerous. It's got some prickles. And he says, I'm sending you out as lambs amongst wolves. Good to have a good shepherd at that point. But they come back and they're not battered and bruised and full of self-pity. As you heard when they come back in verse uh, 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now, I don't know if you've had much to do with demons, with evil spirits. But um, it's not, nothing like the movies, but they're real. And um, it is remarkable. Those of you who've been involved with it once or twice, well, no, it is remarkable how an ordinary, weak Christian praying and speaking in the name of Jesus finds that the evil spirits will obey. It ain't nothing like the movie The Exorcist. That might surprise you that not everything you see about religious things in movies is true, but it's not, it's not like that. And the, these guys come back and they, it's interesting, they don't talk about, we preached the kingdom and people came into the kingdom. 
What they're excited about is these little nobodies find that in the name of Jesus, spiritual forces are broken and obey them. And they're very excited about that. Jesus replies, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. They're out there preaching little nobodies in a sense, little lambs amongst wolves, having their go, saying what they need to say. And Jesus can see this is having huge cosmic implications. You lead a little kid to Christ, you're mildly excited, the angels are dancing. That's what Jesus says. And when the, when the kingdom is going out, the evil one is being pulled down from his throne. He's losing dominions and areas of control, according to Jesus. He says he'll look after his people, but I want to draw your attention to verse 20. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying here, curb your enthusiasm. I think he's not saying, when he says do not rejoice, he's saying, well, yeah, yeah that, that's great. But let me tell you the thing to be really excited about. And when the Bible commands us, as it does, in a number of places, to rejoice, and the reason it commands you to rejoice is because often you won't feel like rejoicing, but the call of God is often for us to rejoice. On what basis? And it always points you to something, because there's much to be miserable about. So when it comes to the, excitingly, ex the really excitingly excitable things, Jesus says, the thing to be excited about for you this morning, for them then, is what? That your names are written in heaven. Now, if there's a little part of you that says, uh, there's one or two possibilities. Either you're a Christian who really needs to be refreshed and to see things as they really are, or there's an outside possibility that you've never seen it at all the significance of having your name written in the book, written in heaven. Moses talks about the names written in heaven at one stage. He talks about that when he's talking with God. Let me take you to Revelation 20 very, very quickly. Because this is the last time, or the second last time, I think, when the, this idea is mentioned. Sorry, Revelation 20. It'll give you an idea why it's worth rejoicing about. This is a moment where you'll be glad to know you'll be there at this moment. This is talking about a scene that we'll all be a part of. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated upon it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Can you imagine something so majestic, so awesome that the, the earth and the universes fly away because it's so unnerving. This is what it is like to see God. This is the, the powerful picture we have here. Verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you see there's two categories of books. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So there's a set of books and there's one book and they're very, very different. What's in the set of books? If the book with your name on it is, is, is sort of brought out, it will have every thought, word and deed. And every one of us who knows ourselves and has any idea of the standards of God knows that's not going to be good. Right? Um, you know, it's, it's bad news. Every thought, every word, every deed. But there's this other book, 
It's called the book of life. Verse 14. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Pretty clear, isn't it? If you get judged by what's in the books and your name is not in the book of life, according to John, who wrote the Revelation, who saw it from Jesus, Jesus gives him the Revelation. If your name is not in his book, you will be cast into the lake of fire. And what's in this book is just names. Well, it'll be a bigger book than this. It's the biggest one I could find. There'll be names and it'll go through the powers. And and the, the angst, to be really trivial, I do remember the angst at school when you'd see if, if your name was up on a football team or not. And you'd start where you thought you belonged, like the 15 A's. Oh, no, crap. 15 but... <laughs> Waiting to see, where's my name? Uh, very disappointing if your name was nowhere. That ain't nothing compared to the moment on the great day where you're standing before God, the judge, and seeing if your name is in the book of life. And Jesus says... Rejoice now that your name is in the book of life. That you are a person whose name has been written in the book of life by Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus. And I picture, and the Bible never says this, but I picture that the writing is in red. It's written in the blood of Jesus. And because he has died for you, whatever's in the books doesn't matter. And your name is in the book of life. Jesus says, Yeah, it's pretty exciting when a little human being can give orders to the evil one in the name of Jesus. But it's nothing compared to the excitement of knowing that your name is written in heaven. We sing in a hymn, uh, one of the hymns that I do love about our name is written on his hands, which is an Old Testament picture. That God loves you and your name is, as it were, tattooed. What, What God is trying to say is there's a certainty that weak little people like us and weak and dodgy people like the first disciples can have when they trust in the Saviour. He's very good at saving sinners. And Jesus says to the guys who've gone out into the harvest to preach the kingdom, yeah, the really big thing to be excited about was the thing that you were telling people about, about the kingdom. The people can be welcomed into the eternal kingdom. From Colossians, they've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the sun. That's the thing, he says. Never allow yourself to forget the invisible that is eternal. These are the things that really matter. And thank God, there's a lot of stuff in life to be excited about. Uh, I don't know about your room, but I've got a water view. If If I just look through, I can see bits of the lake. That's the meaning of life if you're brought up in Australia is to sleep in a place where you've got a water view. You sell your soul for that if you come from that city. But we've got it here. Trees, kangaroos, nice people, flipping good breakfast. There's lots to be excited about and to be thankful for. But Jesus is saying, but never allow these minor blessings and these minor excitements, even the excitement of being used by God to fulfil his purposes, to blind you to the fundamental blessing that Jesus says. This is not just some mad evangelical minister, whatever label you want to put on people. This is Jesus who says, the really deeply, wonderfully exciting thing is that your name is written in the book of life. 
And in whatever else happens, don't ever allow that to become a, oh yeah, tell me something else that's more exciting because there ain't anything. That's why Luke 15, Jesus' beautiful story of the three lost things that get found. The key thing in all those three things is joy. The joy of the woman when she finds a coin, the, the joy of the shepherd when he finds his sheep, the joy of the father when his son returns from the pigsty. It's joy. And Jesus is calling us to never, ever forget that. Now, let me pull this together for us, hopefully. The big question always, with, I find with the Bible, is to always ask, okay, that was interesting, important. But so what? So what? When it comes to joy, um, there is so much that is distractingly wonderful in our life. And we're, we're going to come back to this on Sunday with one of the finest of the disciples who gets distracted momentarily. But to not allow ourselves to get so excited about exciting things that we no longer get most, mostly excited about the most exciting things. And I have shared this once before, but I'm going to share it again because some of you haven't heard it and those who have won't do any harm to hear it twice. Alison and I went to a church that is a very impressive church. It was a church that was massively helpful in sending her to Mongolia as a missionary, and I'm glad they didn't send her there permanently. But that, that, it's a wonderful, godly, joyful, servant church. It's, it's wonderful. Any chance I get, which isn't often enough, I'll go to it. But there was a very depressing moment for me, and a, and a warning moment, when they had reports back from a missionary who'd come back, and that missionary had been working in Fiji, I think, and they were talking about a young Muslim kid who joined their school, had never been ed- none of the family had ever been educated before, went through the school, did well, heard about the gospel, became a Christian, con- continued on at school, got into uni, got a law degree and became a lawyer. At that point, the church burst into applause. And I thought, that is so depressing, isn't it? So depressing that here's a great church. And they applaud when he becomes a lawyer. And I'm all in favour of lawyers. right? <laughs> but to not break into applause when the guy gets eternally saved? Are you kidding? And I tell that about a church that I frankly admire and have grown every time I've been there. But I thought, what's going on in our society? That about the moderately exciting that someone's become a lawyer and done that important work, blah, blah, blah. But to be saved, to get your name in the book of life? I'm not saying that to hammer them. I don't even want to mention the name of the church because it's a great church. I want to get back there sometime when I'm on holidays. But this is what Jesus is saying. Don't get overly excited about the things that are just passing and lovely. And somehow they'll lose the sharp focus of the things that are really exciting. And these are the things that, that lie behind the call into the harvest. (laughs) <laughs> we, you know, if you were at the uh, All Together service, the Celebration and Vision service, we looked at Matthew 4 and then Matthew 28. And here we could look at Luke 9 when Jesus sends the apostles out. Interestingly, he sends the apostles out, just the 12, in, at the beginning of Luke 9, to do this sort of mission thing before he comes to places. They don't even know who he is. They haven't even worked out that he's the Messiah. That comes later in chapter 9. But Jesus seems to think that you don't need to actually be the world's best trained, best theologically sharp person to, to play your part in the kingdom of sharing the news about how to get your name in the book and how to be part of the kingdom of Jesus. He sends them out. 
Matthew 28. Go and make all men my disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. What is one of the commands that he gives to his disciples? Is to make disciples. So that's part of what we're on about. It's an essential part of what we're on about. And yet we can for various reasons, perhaps because of the wolves, put it off and try hard to find. And I've, I've been at, at various Christian gatherings where people try hard to find reasons to say, no, 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 I don't have to be part of the reaching out to people who don't know Jesus. What, why would you want to exclude yourself? I mean, frankly, even if it's wrong, why would you exclude yourself from being involved in the greatest, most significant task of all? There are lots of very important areas of work and our work life matters to God. But there is nothing more important than this. And yet sometimes we work hard to try and find ways to exclude ourselves from the honour and privilege of doing what these 70 or so did to be a part of it. Uh, tonight at 4.30, the, we're, we're having a guy come up from... He's travelling all the way from Jindabyne, so please come. Um, he was going to be part of the morning session that we thought, no, 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 it would be such a short moment. It, it, it might be better if we got him separately. So he's coming up at 4.30. Now, some of you won't be able to... Because I know that, well, certainly when my girls were little, it was called the cyanide hour. From about 4.30 to 6.30, where food, bath, bed, etc. So some of you won't be able to be here. But Trent McGrath is going to come up here. He's, he's planted the church about th three years ago um, up here, a missionary church. And he's going to come and talk about why he would leave the Northern Beaches uh, to come here. I think he does like skiing, but it's still, you, you need a big reason to leave the Northern Beaches. My friends who live there call it God's own country. Um, I don't think that's true. But we're going to just talk with him about 45 minutes about what it's been like for him to be involved in restarting some of the harvesting work here in Jindabyne. Um, and it'll be good to hear why he's doing it. But this is a reminder, I think, for, for you as an individual and for us as a Christian community. This is the work. This is the big rock that will often be forgotten, that we're called to work with Jesus in the harvest. We're called to work alongside him. He comes to seek and to save the lost. And he calls his disciples to work with him in seeking and saving the lost. We're doing this. Actually, I might get um, you two Andrews. Could you um, come and do this? Uh, hold this up. Oh, there we find. Just hold it nice and high for about ten minutes. <laughs> We're going to hang this up here in a little while, but we, we've been talking about the, isn't this isn't isn't this fantastic? One wins one. You see the normal colour of animals when they're being harvested, and we're not talking about chooks. It's a golden colour, unlike the Samaritans. But there's just one. And what we're suggesting, inviting you to take part in this, is, is for this year to pray that God will give you the exciting pleasure and thrill of being involved in him saving just one person. One wins one. Just to have a go and to, to begin to pray. Because remember, that was the first thing. Yeah, hold it up. No, 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 10 minutes. Put it down. Sorry, sorry. Um, the harvest is ready. There's a shortage of people who are out there playing their part. I do think, and I don't want to harm him by complimenting him, 
But I do think what God has helped Andrew Lovett come up with with that course uh, just listed is just wonderful. We got Andrew to come and speak to us when he wasn't at our church to, to run a Saturday workshop because we thought it was so helpful. And many of us were wonderfully blessed and then annoyed that COVID blew in straight after it and sort of distracted us as things often happen like that, don't they? You get about to do something important, ah, distracted. But uh, you've got all, all sorts of opportunities to learn. But I, I think to be praying for our own hearts, that we will see things as Jesus said. We're his disciples. doesn't matter if nobody else in church sees it this way. If he sees the harvest as what matters and fishing is what matters, amongst other things, but first and foremost, the tip of the spear, the most likely thing for us to forget in the midst of everything else. Jesus sets it up here, sends them out to be involved in that. Let me finish with one story, then I will. We're going to pray and sing, and then we're going to go into little groups to finish off this morning's first session before we have morning tea. I love this story. I think about it every week or two, something comes up that reminds me of it. True story. One of those guys who's a a guy who seeks to find executives to place in various companies. You know, some of you will have dealt with those people. They spot talent and put them in the companies. One of my daughters has dealt with them a few times. It's been quite helpful. And this one guy, he was, he was reportedly saying this. I, my technique, he said, in really finding out who these guys are, though they were mostly men back then, he said, was I get them relaxed, I give them a cup of tea or coffee, I put my legs over the side of the corner of the desk, I take me to the Tired, etc. I'm just chatting about family and baseball. It's American, and uh, and then he says, I get them to the point where I think they're thoroughly relaxed, and then I lean across the desk and say, What is your point and purpose in life? And he said, Almost without exception, these very competent business executives fell apart. Uh, you know what? What is what is your real purpose in life? He said, there was just one guy that I've never forgotten. He said, I had him all relaxed. He was leaning back, he'd down, let his tie down a bit. I was relaxed. And then I asked him, what, what is the great purpose of your life? And he said, he, he calmly as anything looked at me and said, to go to heaven and take as many people with me as I can. Right? Now, he was not a preacher. He was not an evangelist. He was a corporate executive. But he knew that alongside his job, and in a sense, flying over the top of it was the importance of going to heaven and taking as many people with him as possible. And this does seem to be the heart of Jesus. He comes to seek and to save the lost. We who are his disciples get caught up in the thrill and the honour of it. And so our suggestion is to work, work with us and we'll try and work with you uh, to work on this one wins one, that God will give you the pleasure and the excitement of being involved in one person uh, coming into his kingdom. Just play a part. All right, let me pray, then we'll sing. Father in heaven, uh, thank you that your word from the very beginning has taught us that we have much to learn and much to unlearn. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that you call us, who are just little people, full of fears and failures and weakness, to play our part in what you're doing in the earth. And we thank you for those who brought the good news of you to us. And we thank you for the great honour you've done us in allowing us to at some level work alongside you. Thank you for your grace and mercy. We do pray that you would help us to be those who increasingly, until the day that we stand before you, rejoice and exult in having been 
having our names written by you into the book of life. So Lord, please keep working on us and please keep working through us. In Jesus' name, amen.